Thanks for joining us for this episode of 13. We want to start by thanking our new patrons, Loki Bremer, Morgan Black, Chase, Robert Cantelmo, and Sid. We couldn't do this without you. Our patrons get access to our Patreon-exclusive Discord, where you can chat with us about the show or whatever else is on your mind. Speaking of the Discord, we're having another movie night a week from today, October 20th. The previous movie nights have been a blast, so if you want to join in, just sign up at patreon.com forward slash 13 pod. Patrons also get bloopers, behind-the-scenes audio, and weekly updates on the show. Different tiers get merch like stickers, t-shirts, and coffee mugs, too. Sign up to support the show at patreon.com forward slash 13 pod. Also, while we're on the subject, if you're a more extroverted listener of 13 and you want to help us spread the word about the show, shoot us an email and ask about being a part of our street team. Our email is info at 13podcast.com. We've got some really fun rewards for folks who want to help us out. A little update on Bridget. She's doing well since being possessed by the forest witch after a deal she made for some gas station pizza rolls. She's been speaking in dead languages, and that's pretty normal for this phase of the possession. She's still locked up in the mess hall of the abandoned summer camp where we all live and record together. It's for her safety and ours. We've been feeding her two rotisserie chickens a day. It's all she'll eat right now. This happens every October, but we love her dearly, and we've promised to take care of her during this trying time. We'll update you again if there are any new developments. We've been bringing you October recommendations all month, and this one is near and dear to our hearts. You know Shelby Scott from some of your favorite 13 episodes, and you know her show Scare You to Sleep. If you don't, you should stop what you're doing and go subscribe on Spotify, because she's so good, Spotify decided they had to have her all to themselves. She also has a new show called Mediums. Break out your Ouija boards and dust off your crystal ball for a gaze deep into the world of spiritualism and the mediums that defined it. Join Shelby as she reanimates the 19th century movement that raised spirits, started feuds, and blurred the lines between the living and the dead. Like Scare You to Sleep, Mediums is a Spotify original. Go subscribe and look for a link in the show notes. Stick around after the show for a trailer. Wow, that was a lot. Thanks for sticking with us through the intro. Now, it's October 13th. Autumn is upon us. It's time for the show. It was the beginning of what would be the loneliest year of my life, the summer of 1999. That empty space between senior year of high school and freshman year of college. I decided to take a year off before going to college, but I didn't really think about what I was going to do with that year. It just seemed like it'd be nice to have a break. I wasn't in a hurry to move on. I liked my life, and I liked my little town. But as the summer came to a close, there were a string of going-away parties, each one a little smaller than the last. I watched as one by one, my friends started moving away to college. And within a few weeks, 
The place I'd known my entire life felt different. It felt empty, kind of dead, sterile. The people I'd grown up with were the ones who'd made this place feel alive. And now? Now it was different. Despite trying to hold on to what was comfortable, it changed right out from underneath me. I was starting to think that this had been a mistake, but we were only 30 minutes from the city. At least half of my friends were in school there. It wasn't that far. We'd be in touch. I think I was trying to hold on to some kind of normalcy because my sister had just passed away. She was younger than me, about to finish elementary school and move on to middle school. It's not why I stayed, at least I don't think so. But it was hard to imagine just leaving after that, moving on and starting a new life, somewhere where there were no traces of her. I don't know, it felt wrong. My parents had mixed feelings about me taking this year off. They were worried that I wouldn't go to college afterward, that I'd get trapped here. They say the longer you wait, the harder it gets to go back. But they were relieved not to have to say goodbye to their one remaining child. They tried to tiptoe that line between hanging on to me and pushing me to grow up. So, if I was going to stay home, they insisted that I work full-time while I wasn't in school. And that's what brought me to Winter's Real Estate Agency. I got a job as the receptionist and all-around errand girl for the office. It paid better than the grocery store where I'd worked part-time in high school. And living at home meant I got to save up a ton of money. But I was the youngest person there by far. Even worse, two of my coworkers were parents of kids in my graduating class. If nothing else, it motivated me to look at schools for next fall. When I finished work for the day and left the office, sometimes I would take Interstate 64 West to the city. It was only 30 minutes away, but crossing the county line felt like traveling 20 years into the future. I would drive around a different college campus each time, trying to absorb the energy of being around other people my age. I didn't dare get out of my car and go into the off-campus restaurants, coffee shops, or other underage hangouts. I was certain I'd be found out, spotted by one of my high school classmates who would know that I was an imposter. Instead, I just lived vicariously on the energy of the city, on the thrill of proximity. But most nights when I got off work, I went home and watched TV with mom and dad. We ate dinner. The empty seat where my sister would have been was the elephant in the room, the thing we were all thinking but didn't talk about. One by one, we went to bed and did it all over again the next day. The weekends were the worst. It was when the weight of my loneliness was heaviest. There was nothing to do, no one to see. Just a blur of unstructured time for my mind to wander. What was I thinking when I decided to stay here? I was fixated on getting to next fall, when I could move on too. 
And just as the weight of all of this was becoming overwhelming, something happened that would change everything. The first Monday in October, I got to the office early and settled in behind my reception desk. A couple minutes before eight, the door swung open and in walked someone I recognized. Someone I honestly never thought I'd see again. Charlotte Reed. Charlie for short. She graduated two years ahead of me. I didn't know she was back in town. As she approached my desk, looking a little nervous. She gave me a look of recognition, like she knew who I was, but she couldn't place me. Hi, I'm here for Mr. Winter. It's my first day. Holy shit, she works here? Before I could reply, Mr. Winter came around the corner and greeted her. He swept her away and began the first day ritual of introducing her to the rest of the office beginning with me. We actually went to school together. Good to see you again. We didn't really know each other. I don't think we ever interacted at school. She was older and cooler than me. We just didn't run in the same circles. For most of the day, she was tied up while she learned the ropes around the office. I found myself following her movements. I suddenly felt self-conscious the high school social pressure and insecurity creeping back in. I was also excited that she was here. Maybe it was just the prospect of being around someone my own age. Maybe just anything or anyone new was a welcome change. The day flew by, and when it was time to close, Charlie was getting ready to leave. As she walked past on her way to the door, she smiled and waved to me. See you tomorrow. After work, I drove to the city, but instead of cruising around one of the college campuses and lurking vicariously at my peers, I went shopping. Something about the way Charlie looked effortlessly professional, gorgeous and comfortable. I just needed something different. The next day, Charlie complimented my new outfit and I was glowing about it the rest of the day. The cool new girl liked my outfit. She was still training with Mr. Winter and spending a lot of time in his office going over what looked like blueprints. This was a little weird because we don't really spend a lot of time with blueprints. We are a real estate agency, not a builder. Later that week, she asked if there were any good lunch spots near the office and we got lunch together. Over the next few weeks, we became friends. Charlie had left town after high school, and then life happened, and she came home. That's how she described it. Life happened. I'm just landing here for a little while, until I get back on my feet. I didn't want to pry. Unlike me, Charlie had her own place. Like a lot of small towns, we had a few streets with storefronts downtown. Most were empty, especially back in 1999 and Charlie had managed to get a little studio apartment above a law office. She might have been the only person in town that lived in one of those old downtown apartments. 
I thought about moving back in with my parents, but you know what it's like. After you move out, it's just so weird going back. I didn't know what that was like, but I didn't correct her. I wanted her to think that maybe I'd been out on my own at some point too. I had the feeling that Charlie felt as lonely and out of place in this town as I did. That maybe she thought coming back here would be a kind of reset to what it was when she left. She could recapture that old feeling. We had that in common. We thought we could hang on to a part of our lives that had passed on. That's when Charlie told me something. A secret. The reason she'd started working for Mr. Winter. You have to swear you won't say anything. Charlie told me that Mr. Winter bought the old Randolph farm just outside of town. Every town has a ghost story or a haunted house. The Randolph farm was ours. It was an old abandoned farmhouse on some land just past the edge of town. You could walk to it from the city limits if you didn't mind the ditch alongside the road and the tall grass in the summertime. The house must have been beautiful in its heyday, but that was a long time ago. Now, it was falling apart. The brick was worn, vines grew up one side of the house, every window was broken. Sometime in the past, someone hung plastic over those broken windows to protect the house from the weather. But now that plastic was shredded, and it blew around in the breeze, adding an eerie sense of movement to the place. I remember driving by the old place in the back seat of my parents' car, watching it pass by from the road, looking for the shape of a person in the windows. I never saw anything. It was called the Randolph Farm because that was the name of the last family that lived there. That was sometime in the 70s. According to people my parents' age, the old house wasn't in much better shape back then, and it was already a local ghost story. Something about the land being cursed. When the Randolphs moved into town, the old farmhouse was going to be a fixer-upper for them. They set to work on it, and at the same time started making friends in town. People saw work being done on the house, and it was harder to imagine the place being cursed, being haunted. But as winter approached, the Randolphs started acting strange. They started becoming more and more reclusive. The more time they spent at the farm, the more unusual they became. Time became strange for them. More than once, Mr. Randolph showed up an hour and a half late to work but he walked in as though nothing were unusual. He seemed completely unaware that he was late. Someone saw Miss Randolph trying to drop the kids off at school on a Sunday, only to find it locked up and empty. And driving by the place at night, you might see all the lights on in the early morning hours. The sound of hammers and construction going on at three or four in the morning. Any of these incidents could be explained away on their own. But taken together, everyone agreed. The longer they were there, the stranger they became. It felt like it was building towards something. Something inevitable. That something inevitable 
came in March of 1979. There's a stretch of a few weeks where the weather can be snowing one day and a sunny spring day the next. But like any good ghost story, this happened on a dark and stormy night. The morning of March 25th, 1979, the newspaper delivery man came by early, around 4.45 in the morning. He heard the sounds of construction coming from the home. Every light was on. This wasn't the first time he'd seen this, but it still felt off, eerie. Every other house on his route was dark and the residents still asleep. The kids didn't show up for school that day. Mr. Randolph didn't show up for work. Someone drove out there to check on the family, but no one came to the door. There was no evidence that anything was wrong, just that the farmhouse was empty. Maybe they'd forgotten what day of the week it was again. Maybe everyone was asleep from being up so late working on the place. The family's two cars were in the driveway. They let it go another day. The next morning, the house was dark. The newspaper man didn't hear the slightest sound from inside. The police and a few people from around town came and walked the fields of the family farm. The back door to the house was open, so they searched inside too. It was hard to tell if anything was out of place or suspicious. It was a construction zone after all. But something just felt wrong. They checked the old ice cellars out on the property. Nothing. No one. One of the volunteers found a patch of Miss Randolph's clothing on the tree line at the back of the farm. The edge of the forest. That was it. That scrap of clothing on the edge of the forest sparked all kinds of speculation. There were no footprints leading into the trees, but it had been storming that last night that anyone had seen activity at the house. Any footprints would have been washed away by the heavy rains. But even though there was no evidence for it, people around town started talking about how they'd walked into the woods, just got up in the dead of night and walked into the forest. I kept Charlie's secret about Mr. Winter buying the Randolph house. No one else in the agency seemed to know about it. A week later, Mr. Winter gathered the whole office together and made the announcement. The old Randolph farm would be built out in phases as a huge subdivision. It was the first time the company had done anything like this. He was not just buying and selling houses anymore. He was getting into the development game. Charlie had been in school for architecture with an emphasis in interior design and function. So she was brought on to be in charge of the centerpiece of the neighborhood. The old farmhouse would be renovated into an event venue that sat in the center of the neighborhood park. Weddings, corporate outings, neighbor meetings, school functions. It would host all of them. It was an exciting time for the company. 
don't know why, I was just the receptionist, but I got caught up in the excitement too. Charlie settled in at the agency over the next couple of weeks, and I was feeling a lot less alone. I hadn't felt that compulsion to drive to the city since we became friends. I was actually starting to feel comfortable here again. Almost every night, I ended up going to Charlie's. She just turned 21, so she could buy alcohol, and she shared with me. We'd watch a movie, hang out. Sometimes we'd even climb the fire escape to the roof of the building and sit there passing a bottle of wine between us. Below us, Main Street was empty and dark. The occasional car passed below, completely unaware that we were up there. From the roof, you could look out over most of our town. It always seemed small, but from up here, it looked really small. When we got deep enough into the bottle of wine, we'd lay back and look up at the sky. Low, fast-moving clouds skirting bright across the sky. We'd only known each other for a few weeks, but I already felt as close to her as I had to anyone. Maybe this year off wasn't such a bad idea after all. It was a week before Halloween. The days were getting short and the leaves were falling in earnest now. They collected on the sides of roads and against fence rows. The mornings were chilly and there was a constant breeze. Fall was here. Charlie convinced Mr. Winter to let me be her assistant on the Randolph house in my downtime. And that meant I got to go out to the farm with her a couple of days a week. Our first visit to the Randolph farm was a cold, windy day. It was a dark day. Not just overcast, but bleak. There were dark clouds on the horizon all day, but they never seemed to move closer. The house was in worse shape than Charlie had expected. She asked me if I'd ever snuck in here in high school. I told her I didn't. She said she didn't either. Honestly, it's scary enough during the day. I couldn't imagine it at night. It smelled like mold and fungus. The house had been full of debris from decades of squatters and high school parties. As a condition of the sale, the previous owners had all the trash cleared out. The brick exterior was in good shape and the foundation was sturdy. But just about everything inside was a lost cause. That meant the project would be expensive, but it was also a complete blank slate. I could see Charlie's imagination at work. I'm not a visual thinker. I can't just walk into a space and imagine what it could become. But Charlie could. The front entrance was a set of double doors and they opened into a front room. There was a central hallway with rooms on either side until you got to a kitchen in the very back. In the main hallway, a staircase took you to the second floor. And then a narrower, steeper staircase took you to the attic. It was a finished attic. The floor needed a little work. The wood must have swollen and shrank with the seasons because nails were poking up all over. It could have been a playroom or something like that in another time. Back down on the second floor, all the windows were broken out, and a steady wind picked up and whistled through the hallway. In the largest of the bedrooms on the second floor, there was a big mirror built into one of the walls. 
It was a miracle that it hadn't been shattered as well, either by nature or by a mischievous explorer. The glass was warped into waves and contours on its surface, making your reflection look a little off as you passed in front of it. Outside the window on the second floor, I could see the forest at the back of the property, where the Randolph family was said to have disappeared that night all those years ago. All the times I'd driven past this place, I'd only ever looked at the house. I'd never really paid attention to the land it was on. The tree line was further than I'd imagined when I'd heard all those stories as a kid. It was a quarter mile, maybe more. It was hard to imagine a whole family just walking all that way in a storm. As I thought about it, I noticed there were dark clouds over the tree line. The storms that were on the verge of rolling in all day were finally coming. The wind picked up in gusts, and I was almost hypnotized by the tall grass in the field, blowing around in waves. It's easy to see how this place could become the home of a ghost story. I could feel the grit and dust from the house getting blown around in the wind and stepped away from the window. Charlie was taking measurements in the other room. I was supposed to be helping, but she didn't seem to mind that I'd gotten sidetracked. Outside, I watched the shadow of the heavy low clouds move across the tall grass and off to the horizon. That doesn't look good. A few moments later, we heard the taps of big raindrops hitting the side of the house, blowing in through the broken windows. Another big gust of wind, and then the skies opened up. The rain was absolutely pouring. After only a minute or so, we started to see and feel big drops of water falling inside the house. <sighs> You've got to be kidding me. A moment later, water came pouring in from the roof. And I mean, it was pouring. We were covered in that metallic, moldy, brownish-yellow water. Instead of waiting out the storm in the house, we ran to the car and got in as fast as we could. Completely soaked and out of breath. Charlie started the car and turned up the heat. The smell was awful. The water must have run through a century or more of dust and decaying wood as it passed through the roof of the house, and then the space between each of the floors above us. We caught our breath and let the heat warm us up as the rain continued pounding against the windshield. Well, we can't go back to the office like this. Do you want to go to my place and get cleaned up? I needed a shower and a change of clothes. Don't worry about your clothes. You can borrow something of mine. I nodded. I was glad she offered. I didn't want Charlie to have to drive me to my parents' house. She knew I still lived with my family, but something about actually taking her there? I don't know. I suddenly felt self-conscious about it. With the rain showing no signs of letting up, we started to pull away from the house. Charlie backed up and turned around. The driveway back to the road was long and straight, and mostly dirt and gravel. While Charlie focused on the road and making sure we didn't get stuck in the mud, I looked out the window. The rain obscured everything at a certain distance. The world was a gray haze, 
but just on the edge of my visibility, I saw something out of place. It looked like the figure of a person. I couldn't make out anything else. They were standing in the tall grass, unbothered by the rain. And while I couldn't make out any features, I could see movement. Their head followed the car as we made our way to the main road. I could see them for only a moment, and then they disappeared into the gray. When we got back to Charlie's, she called Mr. Winter to let him know what happened. He didn't sound happy about how extensive the roof damage was. It was after 3 p.m., so he told Charlie that we could take the rest of the day off, and tomorrow they'd go out to assess the damage. She hung up, and we took turns taking showers. Do you need me to take you to your car? You don't have to go home, unless you want to. Charlie threw our clothes into the wash in hopes the brownish-yellow water didn't stain. We put on a movie and hung out on the couch. We weren't really watching it. Charlie opened a bottle of wine, took a sip, and passed it to me. Outside, the rain tapped on the windows that looked out over Main Street. The sky outside the windows grew darker, and the streetlights clicked on. Charlie pulled a blanket over us and scooched in close. Our forearms touched, and then our legs, and then I felt the weight of her head on my shoulder. There was a tension between us that I'd felt, here and there, just for a moment, ever since we became friends. Something I'd convinced myself was all in my head. The movie ended, and we let the credits roll all the way to the end. Then the screen went blue. Neither of us wanted to move, to be the one to break the moment. It felt delicate, like the slightest thing could wreck it. I don't know how long we sat there, not looking at each other, our fingers grazing against each other's, slowly, delicately inching closer. Charlie was the first to move. She turned her head to look at me. I kept my gaze straight ahead. I smiled a big, goofy smile, afraid to look at her, and she laughed. Have you ever done anything like this? Do you mean anything like this, or...? She put a hand on my cheek and turned me to face her. I tried to meet her eyes, but kept glancing down at her lips. And then she leaned in, grazing her lips against mine gently, and then pulling away. Anything like that? No. Do you want to? I didn't answer, but under the blanket, I put a timid hand on her waist. My heart was racing, and I felt lightheaded. I took a deep breath, and then I leaned in. I stayed that night, and we rode to work together the next day. After that night, I stayed over at Charlie's a couple times a week. I didn't tell my parents anything, and they didn't suspect anything. After all, 
It wasn't unusual to stay over at your friend's place. That's all I told them, that me and Charlie were friends. They were happy that I wasn't so morose and lonely all the time, but I think they missed having me around as much. But I just felt so much better at Charlie's. It wasn't just that we were, well, whatever we were, but there was this weight off my shoulders when we were together. My house, my family, it all felt so solemn, so heavy. Even when everyone was in a good mood, even when my sister wasn't on the forefront of all of our minds, she was always there. She was in the distance that had grown between my parents, the empty room at the top of the stairs, the cat that had loved her more than any of the rest of us. She was always there. Even if it was just her absence, things were just a little bit worse than they were before. A little more empty, a little more sad. There was something missing, and it was never coming back. The days got colder, and the first snow fell, and pretty soon my old friends from high school started coming home for winter break. I got invited to a party the week before Christmas and asked Charlie if she wanted to come with me. Even though it had only been a few months, it didn't take long to realize that I was completely out of place among my old friends. They were having new experiences and meeting new people. They felt, somehow, a little more grown up. Charlie was the oldest person there, but she mingled through the group, talking about being back in town, restoring the Randolph farm. Everybody wanted to hear about that. Whenever I was asked about my life, I didn't have much to say. Someone asked if I was seeing anyone, and I immediately felt panic. I glanced at Charlie. She'd been in earshot of the question, and she was watching me with an amused look. I said, no, I'm not seeing anybody. Charlie gave me a little wink and shuffled off to get another drink. I immediately felt guilty for saying no, but this was Kentucky in the 90s. It was a different world then. Here's something I do. Anytime I'm having a good time, something happens and I spiral afterward. And just then, in that moment, when I said that I wasn't seeing anyone, I realized that Charlie and I had never actually talked about what we were. We spent all of our time together, we knew every inch of each other's bodies. We knew things about each other that no one else did. But we'd never actually talked about it. Were we together? Or was this just something she was doing while we were both stuck in our hometown? Here I was, surrounded by all the people I missed. People I'd been desperately wanting to reconnect with. And instead of feeling good, instead of having fun... I'd managed to hurt my own feelings. That night, I went home with Charlie, and I was still buzzed from the party. I'm not a fun partier. After a while, I get in my head, and I have a hard time being present wherever I am. Charlie was asleep, and I laid there awake next to her. My mind drifted back to high school, and then back further back to when my sister was still with us. 
We'd just moved to our new house, and for the first time we had our own rooms. I was downstairs, down the hall from my parents. She had a room upstairs, and she slept there with the family cat. My sister loved that cat, and the cat loved her. It loved her so much that it even stayed up there with her during thunderstorms. That cat hated thunder, and my sister's room was the loudest one in the house. I guess that's what devotion looks like. I remembered stormy nights when the thunder would wake her up, and I could hear her sneaking into the kitchen after everyone was in bed. The stairs creaked, and she didn't know to walk along the edges instead of in the middle. My parents heard her too, and they got onto her. They said she was too old for midnight snacks. Plus, she left the cabinets open, and the cats got in and ate all their treats. Later, though, when she got really sick, and then when she passed, they left her room exactly like it was. They didn't touch it for a long time. Only the cat went in and out of her room. Then they argued over what to do with it all, with her things, her room, the artifacts she left behind. Then my mom went in and cleaned up the whole room in one day, washed the sheets, put all her stuffed animals and toys in their place, made the bed, vacuumed the floor. It looked like she'd be coming home any time. My dad would sit in there, alone, on the floor sometimes. My mom would come in and look out the window. And then finally, they boxed it all up, packed it away with care, and tried to move on. The five stages of grief. When they packed everything up, between the box spring and mattress, they found an empty pouch of cat treats, and then another, and another. There were a dozen of them, the missing cat treats, all those nights she'd been coming downstairs. She hadn't been sneaking the night snacks for herself. She was sneaking the cat treats, hiding them in her room. I could picture it. All those stormy nights, the bright light and thunder coming in that upstairs window, the wind whistling outside, trees swaying and leaves rustling in the gusts the dull gray light creeping in the windows. While the rest of us slept, she was sitting on her bed, back leaning against the wall, comforting the cat while the storm raged outside, petting her and feeding her little treats to keep her calm. I liked this version of her in my imagination. We had a complicated relationship like all siblings do. Usually, you grow out of it, but we didn't get that chance. So I like to think of her like this. While I watched her in my mind, somewhere between dozing and daydreaming, I saw my sister get up and look out the window at the stormy night, her tiny body silhouetted against the window. I tried to follow her to the window, but my mind wouldn't allow it. I would have to stay at this vantage point, as though looking in from the door. I watched as she calmly opened the window. 
the sound of rustling trees and wind and rain grew louder. Everything that wasn't secured started blowing around. Pieces of paper blew around the room. Coloring books fluttered on her table. The clothes hanging in her closet swayed on their hangers. I watched as she climbed out on the window ledge and sat down. She took a long moment before turning her head back in my direction. She looked disinterested in me. And then, with no fanfare or flourish, she scooched forward and pushed her weight over the side, disappearing from my sight. That feeling I got when I was at that party over winter break, when I realized that Charlie and I had never really talked about what we were, I'd allowed that to fester and settle in my mind. I was overthinking and reading too much into every little gesture. Back then, I wasn't great at expressing my feelings. Plus, Charlie still felt like that cooler, older girl, the one that everyone loved but who felt unattainable. She was out of my league. And what if I brought it up and then, I don't know, maybe she'd realize that she really was out of my league. Maybe bringing it up would be the reason she finally saw me for who I was. A few days after the new year, a crew was there to get started on the roof. But it was the middle of winter and construction was slow. They took the roof down to the truss. The shingles and base were gone. If you stood in the attic, you'd be looking up at bare two-by-eight beams sloping to the peak of the house. I thought it looked like a skeleton. Something changed after the roof was stripped away. I don't know how to say it other than that the energy of the house changed. It just felt heavier. Charlie was out there a lot more often now that construction was underway, staying later until it started getting dark and the crew finished. About a week into the roof project, she came back into the office just before I locked up for the day. Is anyone still here? I told her no. I was closing up for the day. We were here by ourselves. She looked down the dark hall where I'd already turned off all the lights. There was a look on her face, one I knew very well, and it made my skin tingle. She strode toward me, a mischievous grin. I kept glancing down at her lips. She put the palm of her hand in the center of my chest and gently but firmly pressed me back against the wall behind my desk. I didn't resist. So, we have the place to ourselves? Her other hand found my waist and she brought her lips close to mine. I was so turned on, but I was terrified at the same time. We were in plain view from the glass door to the office. Anyone could walk by and see us. I forced myself to pull away. (sighs) Not here, I told her, even as my body screamed for her to keep going. Want to come over tonight? Yeah. Can, Can we talk, though? Yeah, what's on your mind? 
I opened up to her about what I'd been feeling, about my insecurity, how I didn't know where I stood with her. Is this a fling? Is this something real? I needed to know because what I was feeling was becoming very, very real. It was hard to place the look on Charlie's face. She looked sad and hurt. Worst of all, she looked like she pitied me. Look, I don't know exactly what this is either. We've never really talked about what we want. I don't want to stay in this town forever. I want someone to have fun with, and I really, really like you. Headlights arced into the glass door to the office, and we both instinctively pulled away from each other. Come over tonight. We can talk it out. I went home to eat dinner with my parents. I promised them I'd spend more time there. I didn't want to just eat and run, so after dinner we sat around for a while. Time crawled by as I dreaded the conversation with Charlie. When my parents were ready to start winding down for bed, I told them I was going to stay over with Charlie. My mom asked what we did all the time, and I told her we just stayed up late and watched movies. It was better than doing it alone, separately. She seemed to buy it. I drove downtown to Charlie's place and parked behind the building. Charlie's car wasn't there. I got out and walked to the door that opened up to the stairwell that took you upstairs to her apartment. There was a doorbell that rang up there. I waited for a while. Nothing. It was warm for January, but that's still pretty cold, and I didn't want to stand out there much longer. I got back in my car, and there were two thoughts competing in my head. One, she was avoiding me. She had second thoughts about talking about it, and instead of calling me or waiting to tell me in person, she was avoiding me. The second thought, something was wrong. Something was really wrong. I started my car, and I retraced the route she would have taken to get home from the office. No obvious sign that a wreck had happened. I drove all over town. Not that there was a lot of ground to cover. And then, on a hunch, I drove out to the Randolph house. I could see it from a long way off, almost as soon as I left town. Through the gentle mist, a bright point in the distance. Every work light and flood lamp in the place must have been on. It was lit up like an airport. I felt something terrible in my gut. I came to a stop on the road just before turning into the driveway for the Randolph farm. There were no headlights in either direction. No signs of anyone else nearby. Just the lights from town behind me and the dark country road ahead. From the road, I could see that Charlie's car was parked by the house. There were no other cars there. I took a deep breath and I turned into the driveway and made my way toward her. I took great pains to be as quiet as I could getting out of the car. It was cold, colder than it had been in town. 
The whole scene was eerie. It felt like I was going to alert something or someone to my presence. I took a look inside Charlie's car. Nothing out of the ordinary. I looked at the house. I could see through the plastic on the windows a little. There was no front door. It had been removed a few weeks earlier to get equipment inside. Inside, I made my way through the first floor, looking for evidence that she was there. I didn't see anything. Normally, I would have called out her name, but something in my mind screamed against the idea, as though I would alert something to my presence. But what if she was here? What if something had happened? She could freeze to death overnight. I looked up the stairs to the second floor, almost blindingly bright. I listened for any sign of movement, but there was nothing. Just the creaking of my steps on the old stairwell. At the top of the stairs, no sign of anything. I tiptoed my way down the hall. She should have made some noise by now, or at least heard me and come to investigate. This was a bad idea. I was just about to turn back when I looked up at the stairs to the attic, and that's when I saw her. I felt my entire body go limp. I'm not sure how I stayed on my feet. Charlie was standing at the top of the stairs her back to the attic door. She was facing me, looking down at me. She didn't move, and her face was expressionless. But then, she registered that I was there, and her lips curled up into an awful smirk. I couldn't move. I was frozen with fear. This wasn't right. This didn't even look like Charlie. And just as her lips couldn't curl any further, whatever was going on, whatever was doing this to her, it broke. Hey, what are you doing here? As soon as she spoke, something in me released, and all I could do was scream. We drove back to Charlie's. Neither of us spoke on the way. She was in pajama pants and a sweater, meaning she'd gone home and then come back out. She was freezing cold. We wrapped up in a blanket when we got to her place, and she shivered for the next hour until she fell asleep from exhaustion. I lay awake next to her. I lay there for a long time. Before she fell asleep, she told me she forgot to check on something and wanted to make a quick run out to the farmhouse to do it. But that was hours before I found her. It was still daylight. She had no memory of turning on all the lights. 
She had no idea why she was at the top of the stairs. Neither of us brought it up, but we were both thinking it. The town ghost story. The land was cursed. Later that week, after the shock of that night at the Randolph house wore off, Charlie and I finally had a chance to talk about us. I let myself be really vulnerable about my insecurities and how worried I was that she was only with me because there was no one else here. She tried to reassure me that she really did like me, but she wasn't planning to stay here forever. Neither of us were. And until we knew what we were going to do after this year, well, we came to an uneasy truce that lasted through Valentine's Day and into early March. The trepidation Charlie had about the Randolph house faded over time. From what I could tell, it was like that night I found her out there hadn't happened at all. She started spending more time there again. I waited in the car whenever I could. We were finishing the day out there, and I waited in the car like usual. After a while, I needed to stretch my legs, so I got out and leaned against the car. It was an overcast day. I looked out at the tall grass and the tree line off in the distance. When I heard all those stories of the Randolphs walking into the forest, I'd always imagined the tree line being right there by the house. But it was about a quarter mile away. It would have been a long walk. Not something someone would do on a whim, especially on a dark and stormy night. The grass swayed in the wind. It almost looked like waves in the ocean. It was calming. I looked at my watch. It was 4.30. I let my mind wander while I looked out over the old farm. I thought about how much this year had changed me. The whole point of this year had been to hang on to the familiar. But that's not how life works. My thoughts meandered in a restless kind of way. Like when you wake up in the night and you're somewhere between dreaming and awake. I saw my sister in her bedroom, feeding the cat on a stormy night, slowly withering away until there was nothing left of her. I thought about Charlie. I pictured us moving to the city, getting a cute little place together, and just being able to exist. I almost let myself fall into that fantasy. But then my thoughts turned again. They turned to the Randolph house. I didn't want to admit it, and I didn't know how to talk to Charlie about it. But I kept having the same dream. It played out right in front of my eyes. I was waiting outside, just like I am now. And I look up at the roof, stripped down to the beams, and I see Charlie standing up there, in another trance like she'd been that night. In my dream, I run inside to try to get to her, but I get lost. The house is wrong. The hallways are different. The doors don't open into the rooms where they should. And then I wake up. Just then, I thought I saw something from the corner of my eye. Someone standing in the tall grass. I turned to look, but there was nothing there. 
something else happened. Something I can't exactly describe. It's like I came to. Like I woke up. I wasn't by the car anymore. I was walking directly into the tree line. I turned back and the house was forever away. I was only a couple hundred feet from the tree line. I'd walked almost a quarter mile through the tall grass. I was walking directly into the forest. I heard my name from a long way off. Charlie's voice shouting for me. The sky was getting dark. It was nearly nightfall. Tears were pouring down my cheeks. I was so afraid. I turned and ran towards the house. Toward Charlie. I was screaming her name while I ran. Frantically waving my hands. When she spotted me, she came running. And I practically fell into her arms. I was crying hysterically. Charlie barraged me with questions. Where were you? What were you doing out there? I looked down at my watch. 5.45. An hour and 15 minutes had passed. There were no words to explain what had happened. I didn't even try. I don't think I had to. Charlie knew. We stayed up late that night, holding each other in Charlie's bed. I didn't know what to think. I couldn't get past that feeling that I hadn't been in control of my body, my movements. I had never felt so afraid. It was after midnight when Charlie spoke. I can't stop thinking about losing you. I'm okay. You didn't lose me. Yeah, but... I'm losing you a little bit every day. It's just like you said before. I was just having fun while I'm back home. But as soon as I saw that you were gone, the car door still open, as soon as I saw it, I knew it was happening to you too. And I was so afraid. I was afraid that place would get you. We lay there, quiet while she figured out how to say what she was feeling. And then I spoke up. Let's never go back there. But it's my job. It's going to kill us. If we go back there, I don't think we're going to get another warning. We laid awake all night figuring out what to do next. I'd been able to save a ton of money living at home. And Charlie was right about one thing. We didn't have a future in our hometown. The city was just across the county line. It was time to go. I was ready to go. She could probably get her old job back. It wasn't anything like what she had leading the Randolph Farm Project. But it would be enough to get by. I could start school in the fall, and she could finish up her degree. Charlie still had some friends in the city. People we could stay with while we found our own place. We were still awake at sunrise. Charlie called into the office and told Mr. Winter she wouldn't be coming back. 
I finished out the next two weeks behind my old receptionist desk. When I told my parents I was moving out, they took it better than I expected. I think, in a certain way, it was a kind of permission for them to make their own transition. They put the house on the market and looked for something smaller. Somewhere without so much weight. Before I finished packing up, I went into my sister's room and sat on the floor for a little while. She was too young. She never got a chance to figure out who she was. Never got a chance to find her people. I had my chance now, and I wasn't going to lose it. The morning that we loaded the last of Charlie's things into my dad's truck, word started spreading through town. They found something out at the Randolph farm. When they started the interior renovation and pulled up the floors in the attic, they found something underneath. They found bones, an adult man and two children, the missing Randolph family, everyone except Miss Randolph. I imagined that stormy night way back in 1979. A newspaper delivery man sees all the lights on at four in the morning. Underneath the distant grumbling of thunder, he hears the sound of hammering. The worst part, the coroner was convinced they were alive when they were entombed under the floor. They didn't say how they knew, but me and Charlie knew. Those nails, the ones that were standing up out of the wood in the attic, the wood hadn't shrunk away from them. Someone had been banging on the floor from beneath. A terrible realization came over me. The day Charlie and I were there, when it stormed and the rain came pouring in through the roof and then through each floor, that yellow-brown water, the way it smelled, Charlie and I weren't a happy ever after story. We didn't just ride into the sunset. We would only be together for another year, and then we'd go our separate ways. The Randolph Farm project stalled for a while after they found those bodies under the floorboards in the attic. But eventually, it got moving again. I'd lost touch with everyone back home. Everyone but my parents. So a few years ago, when I got a message from a number I didn't recognize, I was surprised to see a link to an article about the Randolph Farm. They started clearing land for a new section of the subdivision. As they brought down that patch of woods at the back of the farm, they finally found Miss Randolph. She was in a low place between some hills. There was a message with the link. Thanks for convincing me to leave when we did. I wrote back wishing her well and then read the rest of the article. It outlined the theory the police had about what happened that night. Somehow, Mrs. Randolph had managed to pull up the floors in the attic and get her family to lie down in the space between them while she nailed the floorboards over them. They have no idea why her husband didn't stop her, why the kids didn't try to get away. It would have taken time. It didn't make sense. After she was done, 
Miss Randolph walked through the fields and into the forest where she succumbed to the cold. Maybe the reporters and police don't know what happened, but I do. They didn't know what they were doing. Just like me walking toward the tree line. Just like Charlie standing at the top of those stairs. The Randolph family thought they were somewhere else. There was a picture of the family, all together in one of those old department store family portraits, the kind you don't really see anymore. I let the feeling wash over me for a minute, the feeling of a near miss, the sadness for that family. A part of me wonders if Miss Randolph had been under a spell or in a trance when she walked into the woods, or if she'd just realized what she'd done. Either way, it didn't matter. Our parents' generation was right, at least about one thing. That land is cursed. Thank you for joining us for this episode of 13. If you like what you heard, stop what you're doing and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This month's story was The Lights from the Old Farmhouse, written by Ian Epperson, narrated by me, Brooke Jeanette. Charlie was Elle Woolery. Editing and sound design by Liz Walker. Music by Caleb Ritchie. With assistance from Bridget Howard. Our producer-level patrons are Rick Linville, Tattooed Fox, Rhiannon, Sean Geary, Anthony Diaz, Wiley Caudill, Paul Doyle, Anton Madison, Delta Tango, Jackie Kay, and Jack Chaddick. Thank you so much for your support. Our Patreon partners get access to an exclusive Discord channel to chat with the creators and a second monthly reading. Merch, bloopers, behind-the-scenes content, and weekly updates on the show. We're on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at some version of 13pod or pod13. Just look for the logo. We'll have links in the show notes. Stay tuned for a trailer from Shelby Scott for Scare You to Sleep. If you'd like to submit a story to be performed on the show or contact us about anything else, get in touch at info at 13podcast.com. You can find that in the show notes too. Bridget Howard is currently possessed by a forest witch. Thanks for listening. See you next month. Welcome to Scare You to Sleep. Have you ever felt like you needed something a little darker than whale noises or counting sheep to unwind at the end of the day? Maybe you've realized horror itself can be a strange but relaxing escape from reality. Every week I bring to you a myriad of bone-chilling tales, from 19th century dusty tomes to modern up-and-coming authors to truer spooky tales like reddit mysteries and time slips all accompanied by a gentle voice and ambient music and sounds so that you feel immersed and lost in your own personal horror story you can find scare you to sleep exclusively on spotify so grab some earbuds a cozy corner and join me shelby scott 
every Thursday, and let's get unsettled together. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. <laughs>